echoing the sentiment of the others who've bid you welcome this morning. David said in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us come into the house of the Lord. He certainly wasn't thinking of the place. He was thinking of the presence of all the worshipers, those who love God, and the presence of God himself. And so I say to you, I'm glad that we're here this morning. I'm glad for those who are online with us. I'm glad for those who are present. And I pray that you're glad to be here as well, and that you've come to worship God. That is our intent here. We intend to help you to do that. The things we're going to talk about here in just a moment, we, we hope will help you, will build you up in your service to the Lord. will help you to see more clearly what He expects of you. And we encourage you to follow along in your Bible. We'll be looking mostly at this text in Luke 23 that was just read. We encourage you to follow along and to consider where your life is in comparison to the things that the Lord has revealed for us here because He expects us to make change and to follow Him and not our own hearts. So we are grateful for your presence with us today. May we glorify God together in the things we talk about here. In Luke chapter 23, we are often confronted with this question as we look at this moment of Jesus on the cross and these two criminals next to Him. And when we're talking with people about salvation, often this question comes up, well, what about the thief on the cross? You're saying I need to be baptized. You're saying there's these other things I need to do. Can't I just be saved like the thief on the cross? And I think that's a valid question. Sometimes it's just used as an excuse not to do what the Lord wants us to do. But sometimes it's a valid question. People are curious about how in the world was the thief saved and can I not simply do what he did? And I want to suggest to you that we are saved in the same way the thief on the cross was. And I want to show you that from the text here today. And hopefully you will understand that there are more things involved for us to be saved like the thief was today. But the thief was saved in the same manner as we reach salvation. So let's look at this text in Luke chapter 23. First thing we see when we, when we examine this question about what about the thief on the cross is that uh, Jesus was crucified here between two thieves. We see that very clearly here in verses 32 and 33. It's not just the one thief. There are one on either side of him. And it really it strengthens his indictment as a criminal. This is exactly what the Jews wanted. They were desiring to prove to the people that this Jesus that they were believing in was a charlatan, was really a criminal. They tried to prove that to the, to the Romans as well so they could get this death sentence cast on him. If you look with me at Mark chapter 14, we see this kind of tribunal that, they, that Jesus receives before the, the Sanhedrin, the major council of the Jews. And the language here and what they're looking for is a legitimate excuse for putting Jesus on the cross. They want to prove that he's a criminal. So in Mark 14, verses 55 and 56, the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. So they come up with all these false accusations, and finally in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And they took him off to be crucified. The high priest had what he wanted. Jesus confessed to being a blasphemer. He called himself the son of the blessed. And so they got their desire in this response. Finally, 
it was once pointed out to me, and I think this is it's interesting to note, they had no accusation that would stick with Jesus. He was irre uh, irreprovable, irreproachable. He had to deliver himself up. <laughs> they had nothing they could really get him on. And so he gave them even the out they were looking for. But the point of all this is, this is a death sentence. This is a judgment against him. The Jews were seeking a way to condemn this man that they thought was condemnable. So they hand down this conviction. That's what we're seeing in Luke 23. Let's back up a little bit and look at verses 20 through 25 back in Luke 23. We see this idea of a conviction now. Pilate, wishing to release Jesus, called out to the crowd of Jews saying uh, that he wanted to let him go. But they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said the third time, why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. <laughs> they have convicted Jesus. Even Pilate, even the Roman... Uh, uh, official here has said, I see no reason to condemn this man, but he ends up giving in to the whimsy of the Jews because they have made this conviction and they believe it should stick. The truth is, though, Jesus was no criminal. He was vindicated by God. Peter, in his great sermon at Pentecost, mentions that in a couple of ways. We've been studying in Romans chapter 1 while you're turning to Acts 2. We've been studying in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the Holy Spirit. That was a declaration of his innocence. His death has power over us when we're sinners. And that's what Peter was pointing out in Acts chapter 2. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus had been delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. They took him by lawless hands, the Jews. They crucified him and put him to death. But God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And David had already prophesied about that in verse 27. Uh, David had said, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. It's true. He was not of corruption. He was not of sin. And so he was vindicated by God in the resurrection. But we see Jesus between the criminals as kind of a, a strengthening of his indictment now as a criminal. It's interesting that both Pilate and one of these thieves recognized his innocence. Pilate just said, I see no reason to condemn him. Three times he tried to get Jesus off the hook. But he ended up giving in because he wanted to satisfy the crowd. So Jesus is between two thieves, strengthening this, this indictment, this, this incrimination of him, but also illustrating prophecy. Mark points this out for us in Mark 15, verse 28. He's really quoting from Isaiah. We just read before the Lord's Supper a few moments ago from Isaiah 53, that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12, and it's Mark 15, 28, that he's fulfilling prophecy that he was numbered with the transgressors. And what's interesting about that is as Isaiah is, is pointing that out, I don't believe he meant that to be fulfilled literally. It was not meant to be a literal thing. It's just that men accredited him to be a criminal. But literally, he was counted with the transgressors as he hung there on the cross. Also, as our brother Ben pointed out on uh, the Lord's Supper, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the truth is God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took on the weight of our sins and he hung there on the cross. It wasn't meant to be literal, it was symbolic, but it literally happened and so he literally did take on our sins. So he's crucified between these two thieves. He's become the criminal that we are, that we deserve to be. He was taking our place, Barabbas was 
was taken away from his imminent death, and we've been taken away from our imminent death, because of what Christ did in his sacrifice. But there's something else that we see. If we go back to Luke 23, we talk about what about that thief on the cross? Well, these two thieves, both of them, were given a chance to know Jesus. They're hanging there next to him for a time. Verses 34 through 39, they're observing the things that Luke registers for us here. They're together with him. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. When he is not reviling those who are reviling him. They met Jesus personally. A lot of us would say, well, I would, I would love to have had a chance to meet Jesus personally. What if that's where you met him? Up on the cross on either side. Would have met him personally. It's likely that they knew of his fame later on when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. He's talking with these two men and they're saying, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that doesn't know all these things that have happened? And they talk about all the things Jesus did and then what happened to him at the hands of Pilate. This was great news in this area. And so surely these two thieves had known something of who this man was. And here they are on either side of him. A lot of people were wanting to meet Jesus. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 56, they're thronging about him. Everybody, when they hear what he's doing, they're bringing people out to him so they can heal them, so they can lay his hands on them. In John 12, when Jesus goes up for the last Passover, there are some Greeks there. There's some Gentiles, and they come and say to Philip, we want to meet Jesus. Sir, we, we would see Jesus. And Philip doesn't know, can we bring them to you or not? And Jesus, of course, permits them to come. Everybody wanted to meet Jesus personally. Everybody wanted to get to know him. Jesus is famous, but he's still famous. Everybody in some way or another says something about how much they would like to meet Jesus. Oh, I just love to talk to him. Whether you think he's the son of God or just some great religious teacher, people want to meet Jesus. They want to talk to him. And so these people had that opportunity. But I want you to notice something about their situation. Where they're hanging there on the cross next to Jesus, they didn't have a chance to clean up their act first. A lot of people that have kind of a religious thought about wanting to meet Jesus think, but I'd like to meet him once I've got all my life straightened out. I don't want him to see me at my worst. So I'm going to go figure everything out first, and then maybe someday I'll go try to meet Jesus once I've got it all figured out. Well, i got bad news for you. You're never going to figure it out without Jesus. These two men met Jesus as men condemned to die. But I want to tell you, that's where you are also. Romans 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you. <laughs> Hebrews 4, 13. We're all guilty. We're all laid bare before the one that we're going to have to give account to. All of us. We all meet Jesus as condemned men. It doesn't matter how much we clean up our act. <laughs> we're not going to clean up our sin. We can't. We need Jesus for that. So these men met him as condemned men. <laughs> and there they hang at either side of him. Most people don't want to come to Jesus that way. They'd much rather not have to hear him say that they need to change. And so they'll change a few things. They'll leave off a few things. They'll make their life look kind of flowery and pretty. And then they'll try to please Jesus with these little acts. But they don't really come to Jesus as condemned men. They're not really seeking for what condemnation is seeking for, which is justification. But we have to understand salvation, justification... A not guilty plea on top of what we know we're guilty of is only possible for sinners. If we'll go back in Luke to chapter 5. When Matthew is called Levi, he 
puts on a feast for Jesus. And he has a bunch of people at his house that are unlikely and that even would have offended some of the disciples that were already following Jesus and certainly offended the religious leadership. Interestingly enough, some of them seem to have been invited to Levi's house. But in Luke 5, starting at verse 29, Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we believe that we're already righteous without Jesus, if we believe we've already got it all together, he can't help us. He was being ironic in what he said, because those religious leaders thought they had it all together while they were condemning others, even his disciples, for having contact with these other sinful people. And for Jesus sitting there and eating in the midst of them. And Jesus said, if I'm a good doctor, I've got to heal people who are sick. I can't just hang around with people who are well. I've got to go find the ones that are sick and heal them. And the truth is, everybody's sick, except many don't know it. So he had to first tell them the bad news, so that he could then give them the good news that he had the cure. Salvation is only possible for sinners, and until we recognize that we're sinners, until we're willing to admit the bad news, we're not going to go in for the surgery. We're not going to go in to take the medicine. As bad as it might be, the end result is it's going to save our lives. But we've got to be willing to admit it first. These men, they had nothing to hide at this point. They're up there where they can't say anything else. They're condemned as criminals, hanging there next to Jesus. And I want to suggest to you, as I started out on this part, they got to know Jesus by observing what he did. Here they're hanging there. They don't have anything else to do. They can't go anywhere. And they see him seeking forgiveness for the ones who are driving nails into his arms, into his feet. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How hard is that? To forgive even the ignorant for doing something so cruel. They did it willfully. And they were willfully ignorant. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He did not revile his revilers. They stood around making fun of him, casting jeers at him. Here is the king of kings. Here's the one who made them. John chapter 1. And yet they rejected him when he came to them. And they were making fun of him as he's hanging there on the cross for their benefit. <laughs> making fun of him. And yet he doesn't revile them in return. And he doesn't give in to great temptation. What they said to him was, if you want to really show us you're the Christ, you've been saying it all this time, that you've been saving all these other people, show us something, save yourself. <laughs> come down off the cross and you know what? We'll believe as soon as you come down. What a temptation that might have been. Of course, Jesus knew coming off the cross, one, he wasn't going to fulfill what he came to do, wasn't going to fulfill the Father's will, and they wouldn't have believed anyway. They would have found another reason not to believe. He had shown them enough evidence to believe. He'd shown them miracle after miracle. He taught them uh, fulfillment of Scripture after fulfillment of Scripture. And they wouldn't see it. <laughs> he says famously in the book of Luke, they have Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead. <laughs> Prophesying about what's going to happen to himself. They weren't going to believe even if he had come down off the cross. And so he didn't. And these two thieves are seeing all of this. They're watching what happened with him. I think it's amazing that the Bible teaches that we come to know Jesus in exactly the same way. We get to know him by observing what he did. We weren't there, but we've got it all registered for us here. 
we get to see Jesus as clearly as though we were walking with him. Actually, we get to see more. The people that saw Jesus in that day saw him one day. Maybe two or three if they followed him. We see everything that was registered for us. I love how Peter says it because it sounds so much like what we see happening here on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. Peter says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Peter says, you can observe the same things those two thieves observed about Jesus. The same things we've all observed about him that show that he was no mere man. He was different. And the, the proof came after the cross. But look also at John chapter 20. I love the way John lays this out. Of course, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, and obviously you can tell John's love for Jesus. He says some things that are, that are hyperbolic, that are just beautiful, poetic. He says in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In another place he says, I suppose if they were all written, all the books in the world couldn't contain all the things he did. Just so much love, so much admiration. But he says here, the things that have been registered, and I believe he's talking about just the things he registered in his gospel, they're enough for you to believe. There's enough evidence, just as what John laid down, for us to believe and believing have life in his name. We observe what he did, what he taught, and we know who he was by observing him. And so we learn the same thing the thieves on the cross learned. But we also find there's two different reactions. Those two thieves reacted completely differently to Jesus. At first, Matthew 27, we looked at that earlier, they both joined the crowd. They're both reviling him because they're bitter also. They're heading to their death. They're lashing out. But later, after observing him for a while, one of them blasphemed him. That's exactly what the text says here. Charged him, are you not the Christ? Are you not saying you're the Christ? Do something about it. Save yourself and save us. Come on, show us who you are. Blasphemy. He doesn't really believe it. He's just chiding him like the others are. But to that, the other thief rebukes him, replying, Don't you have any sense of guilt? You're justly condemned, but this man is not. He has done nothing wrong. Why are you reviling this man? He has, he's, nothing, he's none of your case. But what we find out, we'll be seeing this in Romans chapter 1, sinners seek to condemn. They know the righteous judgment of God, that doing such things deserves death, but they not only do them, but they encourage others to do them as well. Because sinners seek to condemn. It's lonely being condemned. If I can bring others with me, that's a blessing. Really? That's the way sinners think. But honor and love seeks justice. This man condemnable, rightly so, loves Jesus. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 and 7. He seeks the justice and the honor that Jesus deserves because he recognizes this man is innocent. He's being condemned unjustly. And love, we're told, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 and 7, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Here's a man who saw in Jesus a hope beyond the situation that Jesus was in. He believed this man is unjustly being condemned. You have no right to revile him, other thief. I'm not going to revile him because this man has done nothing wrong. And so that man, upon observing all these things, he feared God and he admitted his own sin. Hanging there on the cross, he admits and confesses his own sin. He says in verse 41, proving that he understood his situation, we indeed are justly condemned. We receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This man understood that. We have earned this that we're receiving today, he says. This is a due reward. This is our just payment. This is our salary. It's death. What a realization as he's hanging there dying. It's a little late now to do something about it, right? But he turns to Jesus. Can you imagine they're hanging there on the cross, Jesus in the middle. The one man turns toward Jesus. The other turns away, <laughs> turns against him. And when he turns to Jesus, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you, can you imagine that? How much he had seen to recognize the character of this man and know it's not over for him here. He's been saying he's the son of God, and you know what? He's in a better position to say that than I am to say that he's not. Me hanging here against him. Here's a man who's proven that he's not of the same character of all the others who have passed through this life and who have faced death. Jesus is facing death with grace and with honor and seeking the glory of God and forgiving the ones who have put him there. It's interesting that this man hanging on the cross shows more faith in this moment, at least, than the apostles did. At first, they said, we'll go with you to death. We're not worried. We'll fight for your kingdom. But as soon as the people came to, to get Jesus, Peter pulled out the sword. When that didn't work, they ran, all of them, including John Mark, who's telling the story. He tells us in verses 50 through 52 of a young man who fled nude from the thing. Such shame. Most likely was John Mark himself who's telling us this information. This man shows more faith in Jesus than the apostles did at this moment. He recognized the kingdom and said, please take me with you. It's interesting. Both these men have seen the same thing. They're hanging there, watching all the same thing happen, the same scene. They have the same exact evidence. And yet they come up with two completely different conclusions. One reviles them as an evildoer, and the other says, take me with you into your kingdom. What a difference of opinion. But the truth always divides, in fact. Luke had already told us in chapter 11, verse 23, in the words of Jesus, either you're with me or against me. If you're not with me, you're against me. The world likes to think that you can kind of be for Jesus and kind of in the world. Jesus says, either you're with me or against me. These two thieves represent the world. You've got the one who recognizes who Jesus is and the other who says, nope, not for me. That's where we stand. That's our situation. We're faced with that same evidence. What will the truth do with us? Amazingly, when it seemed like there's no hope, Jesus saves the believing thief. How is that possible? Here's this man who's being condemned rightly, justly for his evil deeds. And Jesus says, okay, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
What? That doesn't seem fair. What about the other thief? You think he's backpedaling now? Or you think he still thinks this is all a joke? He's got a few moments of life left to think about it. It's interesting, though, what Jesus is talking about here. He didn't tell the thief, okay, let's get down off the cross. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> let's get down now. You said the right things. No. Jesus is obviously speaking of spiritual salvation and not physical. The thief is going to die in just a few moments. Jesus didn't promise him anything else. It's amazing to me that so many who claim to want to know Jesus, to want to come to be with him, they're only seeking for some momentary respite, some physical salvation, some blessing here on this earth, but they're not really considering, Lord, bring me into your kingdom. <laughs> they're looking short term. And it's so often that's what's preached, is a short term fix, something to make you feel good about what you're doing today, even as you continue in your sin. Jesus offered this man spiritual salvation. It's amazing to me. Jesus is hanging here dying, and what he's thinking about? Eternal life. <laughs> Isn't that a blessed thought to have as you're lying there dying? I don't know how many of you have known faithful brethren who've gone on, who in their last moments were talking about the reward. <laughs> what a blessing to be able to pray with and sing with and, and help someone along into heaven, into the Lord's waiting arms, because they knew they were serving the Lord to enter his kingdom, not just for whatever they could get here. Jesus is thinking of eternal life at the time of his own death. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says he went to the cross, not because he wanted to go to the cross. He prayed about that. He asked if it could be taken away. When it couldn't, he went for the joy that was set before him to be restored back to the glory he had with the Father before time was. But even more, to bring many sons to glory through the sacrifice that he was offering that day. That was the response of God. There is no other way. And he said, okay, your will be done and not mine. And he went joyfully to the cross. Whew, those nails weren't, they weren't happy nails. It wasn't joyous moment in, in the pain. But the joy is beyond that as he's looking on to eternity. We've got to learn to let this moment go and to look forward to eternity like Jesus did for the joy that was set before him. It is interesting that Jesus responds the way he does. This man just simply said, you must be a king. The way you're doing, the way Rome is, is fighting against you, you must be a king. Please let me have part in your kingdom. And Jesus reminds him what his kingdom's really about. You'll be with me today in paradise. It's a return to Eden. That's the word he would have used here. I'm taking you back to the place where all this went terribly wrong. Before that, in the restoration. Think about this for a moment, too. Sometimes we struggle with this. How much did the thief really know spiritually? This moment that Jesus saves him, he's got very little spiritual knowledge. He's had this observation, this few moments where he's here with, he's here with Jesus. But he knows a few things. He knows and recognizes his own condition. He's a guilty man who is rightly condemned because he's done things that he shouldn't have done. That's his condition. He also knew Jesus' condition. He recognized that Jesus is guiltless. He's innocent. He's sinless. And he's being unjustly condemned. Those are two things that we have to recognize when we come to the gospel. We have to know who we are. We have to know who Jesus is. And everything about that, the nature of our sinfulness and the nature of his sinlessness, we need to recognize that if we're going to understand what the gospel is teaching. But finally, 
We have to believe in this kingdom that Jesus is preaching. We have to believe in the salvation that he's offering and what it really means. And we have to desire to be a part of it. Hebrews eleven six, those who diligently are seeking to serve him are the ones that will reach the reward by faith. If we don't believe and we're not willing to act on it, if it's just kind of this ethereal feeling we have that maybe something good will come of this, that's not the same thing. And so he believed in Jesus' kingdom and told Jesus he desired to be a part of it. And so what happens is, this thief was saved that day by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8 says that's exactly how we're saved. I told you at the beginning, we're saved just like the thief on the cross was. He was saved by God's grace. God gave him salvation through his faith. This is a gift from Jesus. Jesus said, I'll take you with me, sure. What did the thief do to earn that? Could he have done anything to earn his salvation? He's hanging on the cross. He did nothing except look at Jesus and say, I want to go with you. Take me with you. I believe. That was his faith based on what he observed and what he had heard Jesus saying. He responded in belief. Now think about all this. He had heard. He believed what he was hearing. He confessed that he's rightfully a sinner. He's even repented. He's calling on Jesus to forgive him and take him with him. But he couldn't be saved. He wasn't baptized, right? And that's the argument on the other side usually. Of course he was saved without baptism. Baptism is not necessary. You can tell if you're going to be saved like the thief on the cross, you don't need baptism. Just do what the thief on the cross did. Look to Jesus and say, take me to your kingdom. There's a problem with that, though. What about the thief on the cross? Let's answer the question we started with. Usually, as I said, this is an attempt to disprove baptism or to prove that it's not needed. Usually, as I said, it may be an honest question. I think it's, we're looking at this in an honest way today. But... Why would that be a proof that baptism is not needed? Let me show you a simple outline of the question of baptism at this moment. <laughs> baptism as a part in salvation can only be possible after Christ's death. And I'll show you why. Hebrews chapter 9. This is the simple answer to this tough question about is baptism necessary for salvation. This is the simple answer. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. Speaking of Jesus, it says... For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. There's a transferring of these words, covenant and testament here, but it's talking about the same concept. Testament might be easier for us to understand. We talk about our last will and testament. If I write out a will, my son has no right to go and declare the things that are in the will until I'm dead. Once I'm dead, that will goes into effect. That covenant that's made by that testament goes into effect. In Jesus' new covenant, baptism is one of the necessary steps for re that's required for salvation. That's part of the grace being given by God and our faith response to the grace that God is giving. Part of our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' new covenant involves the action of baptism. But that hadn't been established yet. He was still alive. You couldn't claim that until after his death. And so what does Peter do on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? 
Now that Jesus has died and resurrected, the covenant is enacted. It's in effect. People hear the message there, recognize they're condemned. In fact, they understand they're very condemned. They killed the Son of God. And they say, what do we do? What do you do if you killed the Son of God? You fry. You're done. But that's not the response Peter gives. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They heard this. They were cut to the heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why didn't Peter say, die, and today you will be with Jesus in paradise? <laughs> he could have said that. He could have said, raise your hand and say, Jesus, come into my heart, and I'll come into your kingdom. He could have said that. But what he said was, in this new covenant, there's a need for the repentance that you're showing, but there's a need for baptism for remission of sins. And finally, Look at Romans chapter 6. So we saw that the testament is only ratified by the death of the testator. Jesus is the testator there. He had to die first. We saw that that's what Peter preached the first time the message finally went out to the multitude there in Acts chapter 2. And then Paul teaches exactly this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And he's just presuming now that these Roman Christians have been baptized. He doesn't even think of that as an issue. He's just explaining how it works. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So why is baptism only necessary after Jesus' death? Well, because it's in essence a reenactment of his death. We're buried with him and then raised again to a new life. The thief was at a different time. He was under a different covenant. We don't ever complain about the others that Jesus forgave, the paralyzed man. We don't say, well, what about the paralyzed man? Doesn't he prove that baptism isn't necessary? Jesus forgave him by grace, seeing his faith. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When he saw his faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Didn't even heal the man first. He took care of his real need. There were others that Jesus forgave of their sins and said, go your way and sin no more. We don't bring those up as proof against baptism. It's the thief on the cross for some reason. But all of those were under a different covenant. Jesus had the right to give salvation to whom he wills while he's still alive there and as he was on the cross. And he has the right to give it to whom he wills in his testament according to the terms of the contract of the testament that include hearing, believing, confessing, repenting, and being baptized and continuing faithfully to walk with him. All of those things are involved. It doesn't mean that anybody earns their salvation. It just means they fulfilled the terms of this testament and contract. They're doing what God has asked them to do. Here's a better question, I think. When people ask me about the thief on the cross and they want to bring this argument up, I say, well, what about the other thief? Nobody ever talks about him. Let's look at his situation for just a moment. He's just like us. He's a sinner. He's condemned to death. He's got a death sentence on his head, and he's filling his out at the moment. We like to think ours is centuries ahead. <laughs> All of our death sentence could be right now. <laughs> it could be as we walk out this door. It could be before we ever leave from here. We are hanging on a cross. <laughs> our condemnation is just, and it's already doled out for us. Death has been decreed. Romans 3.23, all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, sin, its wages, 
is death. We're ready to receive our wages at any moment. So we're like that man. But just like us, that man was given a chance to know Jesus, really to examine the evidence about this man. He's hanging there, hearing all this evidence, seeing all this evidence, and examining it, and he comes to the conclusion that it's worthless stuff. You can make that conclusion if you like. John said, as we read earlier in, verse, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that what he has presented is legitimate, it's literally legal evidence. John has laid it out as a legal argument, his, his gospel. As we look at that and see all the corroborating evidence, it's enough to believe and believing to have life in, in the name of Jesus. If we will not believe based on what John has revealed, then we're not going to believe. There's enough evidence just there. Well, we've been given that opportunity. And just like us, this man was confronted with a life and death decision. I love how Paul puts this so simply in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Life and death decision. When the gospel comes, we have an opportunity to examine the evidence of the gospel and say, yes, I believe he's the king. Or to say, that sounds like a bunch of mythical garbage, and reject it. It doesn't change our situation. We're still condemned to die. We still see every single day, especially with the COVID numbers so high, people are dying that have all been faced with this same situation, this same decision. We're still faced with this decision, and we're still faced with death. There's only one who's ever proved that he can overcome death by taking us into an eternal kingdom that's the kingdom of paradise. Every one of us has an appointment with death. And I think it's important for us to sort of picture ourselves hanging on that cross beside Jesus. <laughs> because then it makes it real. <laughs> then we realize we're on our deathbed, <laughs> not just someday it's going to happen. It's coming. There's an appointment I already made. Hebrews 9, 27, for all men it's appointed to die once, and then the judgment. <laughs> but we've all been given a chance to know Jesus. You've heard about him today, <laughs> in the gospel being presented. And you have a Bible. I presume you can read about him on your own. What are you doing with your knowledge of him? Are you making excuses and saying, well, what about this other person and things done that? That's an excuse. <laughs> if you're rejecting what God says for you to do, because you're looking at what he did with someone else. His grace is immense. <laughs> it's boundless. His loving kindness endures forever, and I can be so thankful for that. But he's also told me things that are my responsibility and my response of faith if I truly believe, I'll do those things, and I'll want to come to be with him. The question remains, you've been presented with the evidence. What are you doing with it, and have you been saved from eternal death? Are you hanging on that cross and uncertain of where this is going? Are you like the one thief who's receiving the calming message, you'll get to be with me in paradise? Those are the only two options. Either you're condemned for eternity, or you're in paradise for eternity. If we can help you make the decision to be with Jesus in paradise, let us know about that. We'd love to help you with that today. If you're already a Christian and you're struggling in some way, you need the prayers and the encouragement of the congregation here, let us know that as well. We'd love to help you to, to be with Jesus for all eternity and glorify Him and being glorified together with Him. If we can help you with that, come while we stand and sing this song to encourage your decision. <laughs>